All right, well, I invite you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll continue our study of this really important section of Scripture as it brings before us uh, a profound um, and commanded practice of the New Covenant Church, of the New Testament Church, of God's redeemed people in the celebration of the communion meal or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table or the Eucharist. It goes by a number of different monikers. But we've been talking about this, uh, this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It begins really in uh, chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 17 and continues all the way down to the end of the chapter. And we've been discussing this for a number of weeks and we've entitled this section from broken fellowship to the breaking of bread. And we noted for a little bit of our time in the beginning of our study how the first half of this really deals with this issue of broken fellowship. Uh, the Apostle Paul raises up this matter of divisions within the life of the Corinthian church. And as we've seen as a, and as we repeated a number of times, this is not a new matter that he's dealt with. In fact, it's the very first thing that he dealt with when he began the letter back in chapter 1, this matter of divisions in the life of the church. But the fact that it was manifesting itself, these divisions were manifesting itself in the context of the gathered assembly for worship and for communion and for fellowship, even a fellowship meal that was known as a love feast, where the last thing that was being demonstrated was actual love, but rather narcissism, self-centeredness, self-gratification, these kinds of things that these divisions were manifesting themselves in ways that were profoundly disheartening to the Apostle Paul. And more importantly, they were reflective of something other than an actual communion of true believers. Um, This matter of broken fellowship, we kind of looked at it at length, and we talked about how this really had an effect on the entire congregation. Anytime there is division in the life of a church, a local church, that is persistent, not that there's not conflict, not that we don't have to deal with relational conflict and discord, and we don't have to be about the business of reconciliation, and it's not that we're not going to ever come to a gathered time like this or even around a communion table without some measure of conflict or relational discord in, in, our, in our lives or in our, in our sphere of relationship. It's not, it's not a matter of, of having to have the complete purified absence of any kind of relational discord. It's this, it's this matter of, of established practice or persistence, uh, of, of establishing habits uh, of life and priority uh, that maintain this kind of discord, that are not after some kind of reconciliation that is really in view here and in play, and openly engaging in acts that propagate or further or advance The discord is what's in view here. And the Apostle Paul is very stark in his description in this first section. I mean, he says even things like, you know, you're not getting together for the good, it's for the worse. It's almost like a statement like, it'd probably be better if this is going to be the character of your assembly, that you don't even get together. That's a pretty stark statement by the Apostle Paul to the gathered assembly of believers when his entire effort in mission enterprise is to call out those who belong to Christ to come to faith in him and then begin to assemble for the sake of worship and for the sake of instruction and for the sake of building up in the doctrines of the apostles, for prayer, for communion, 
so that they're then equipped to go out and be effective witnesses. I mean, that's the whole point. And yet, what's, what's going on here is so problematic that he's even saying things like it, they're gathering for the worse, not for the better. It'd probably be better if they didn't gather under these circumstances. And he even goes on to describe that even though you think you are partaking of the Lord's Supper, you're not. You can come around a table and you can have all of the sort of the accoutrements of the meal. You could have the elements and you could kind of go through some type of ceremonial exercise. But if divisions persist among you and you are partaking of this, then you are engaging in what could be considered just empty or perfunctory worship. Just taking that that idea of gathering for the worse and not for the better to its logical conclusion that you're engaging in this, this surface practice that has no real meaning. It's empty. So a real stark sort of rebuke by the Apostle Paul in this first section over this matter of division, but then he turns the corner, as we did as well last week, to begin to talk about the actual institution of the Lord's Supper, this move toward the actual breaking of bread, this, this direction that he's providing toward an actual faithful gathering of God's people for the purpose of genuine worship, of true worship, around the table in particular, around the communion table in particular. And we began last time by looking at this passage beginning in the latter part in verse 23. So if you want to pick up there, we'll just read verses 23 of chapter 11 through the end of the chapter, and we'll kind of dive back into this, to our study of this section. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, in this section, in verses 23 to 26, as I said, this is where we see the, the record of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Interestingly enough, it's possible that this is the first written record of this institution of the Lord's table. It's possible that 1 Corinthians was written prior to any of the Gospels. The timing is is rather close, and the date ranges that you have for the Gospels begin around the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians and extend beyond it as a range So this could very well be the initial sort of first written record of Jesus' instructions on what the significance is of this memorial meal. It's a very important passage of Scripture here as we see the Lord instituting this this meal, this supper. 
And we talked last time, as we see there, right at the very beginning of verse 23, that that this information was given by what we just might call a very special delivery process. The special delivery of this is, is worthy of note. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And we talked last week at some length about how this, this quite likely was a part of the instruction, the tutelage that the Apostle Paul received directly from the, the, the resurrected Christ by direct revelation for that three-year period prior to him engaging with the other disciples. Remember, if you go to Galatians chapter 1, we read through that whole sort of biographical detail in Galatians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul basically fills in some of the gaps that you don't find in Acts. And, and you begin to see that, that the Apostle Paul was quite likely instructed by Christ and, and understood all kinds of things about the gospel and the implications of the gospel and the nature of the gospel and the new covenant doctrines and what that related, how that related to the old covenant and how the fulfillment realities of the new covenant played in and how they should be taught and passed on and instructed and proclaimed. And so you have here the Apostle Paul just taking a moment. I mean, he could have done this a number of different occasions. You kind of have a little bit of an allusion to this kind of thing back in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. You may recall where he's talking about this matter of marriage and divorce. And he has that statement. Uh, He says, not I, but the Lord say these things to you. And then following that, he says, I, not the Lord. But it's not a direct quotation of Jesus' words. This This is even more unique And he could have done it in in any number of places. He could have said, in any number of places, in any of his letters, he could have said, this is what the Lord said to me, and now I proclaim to you. So when he says this, we have to take note. This is not so much him setting this off as authoritative in comparison to the rest of the letter, which is not as authoritative. It's to bring to bear to us the significance of what he's saying the specificity that he wants us to take note of. This is a very special delivery of instruction, in other words, and he's wanting the Corinthians to see it as that. And he's therefore wanting us, by extension, to see it as that. It's also a way that he could sort of compound their shame because in in reading through what Jesus had told him about this communion meal and what it was to be about and how it was to be conducted and what it what it represented ought to have brought shame on the Corinthians because it was so far removed from what they were practicing and what they were doing. So it has that dual effect of, of bringing weight and gravity to it, but also putting a stark contrast in view to show the Corinthians how far they were from the stated and intended purpose that the Lord established when he instituted this sacred meal. Now, it's interesting to continue on and look at this. We, we talked a little bit last week about this idea of a sovereign author. This is just sort of expanding on this special delivery idea, but just noting that, that the message that the Apostle Paul received and is now passing on to the Corinthians is actually Jesus accounting to the Apostle Paul after his resurrection what actually took place with the disciples at that Passover meal. It's, it's, the, it's the Lord's sort of narration to the Apostle Paul, his summation of what he said and what he meant by what he said when he gathered with those apostles. 
So again, this, this reiteration of the emphasis and importance of this particular meal and how we need to be mindful of what this means for us as New Covenant believers and how we should approach it at those times when we do celebrate communion. And we'll talk about more of that as we go forward. So you have this special delivery of this communion meal, the institution of the Lord's Supper, by direct revelation to the Apostle Paul that he then passed on to the Corinthians. You see that the actual message or information itself was, was sort of the narration. It's, it's the account of Christ himself to the Apostle Paul of his own words, of his own institution of this with his disciples. And then last week, we took a minute to look at the somber occasion that's being described here. In verse 23, the second part, you see, this, it, you see this reference to it being on the night that the Lord was betrayed. You have this reference to the betrayal. Now, certainly, as we've already stated, and as we well know, if you have any experience in, in, in the church, that the setting here is indeed the Passover meal. It is the quote-unquote Last Supper. And that Last Supper, Jesus' last meal with the disciples, is the Passover meal. They are celebrating the Jewish Passover. That's what this is all about. That's the, that's the context and the setting that Jesus is now describing. It's, it's a high holy day on the Jewish calendar. Obviously, we've talked about this a number of weeks ago, but it's, it's, it's the day in which they, it's a celebration of the, of the deliverance of God's people from Egyptian bondage. But it represents a greater deliverance from the bondage of sin, and that's where Jesus is going to take this. But it's, it's a high holy day, it's the Passover meal, it's also the evening of Jesus' arrest, and his subsequent, it's prior to his subsequent trials, the sham trials that he would go through. And it's the evening prior to his ultimate crucifixion. It's also the occasion of Jesus, now think about this, it's the occasion of Jesus' final words of instruction, of encouragement, of warning to these men who would then be taking his gospel his message of the kingdom of God, and advancing his mission going forward after his crucifixion. Like, this is the moment that's being described here. It's a high holy day on the Jewish calendar, so it has that gravity associated with it. Jesus knows that this is the night before he is going to be arrested and tried and ultimately crucified. He is mindful of the fact that this is his last opportunity in this venue, in this form, in this incarnate body, to share with his disciples final words of instruction and encouragement and charge and challenge. This is also, remember, the evening of Jesus' intense prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. This time in which the, the, the stress and strain of the moment would manifest in symptoms in physical symptoms that, that demonstrated the, the actual anguish that he was under. Experiencing what doctors now call hematidrosis. This is an extremely rare condition, but it's an actual condition. It's when the body goes into what's called fight or flight mode. And it, and it takes place, it, what happens is the small blood vessels on the surface of the skin just rupture under the strain of the moment. 
It's very rare, but it's, it's, in, the, it's in a situation, doctors say, of extreme stress, often extreme fear, or someone who's actually facing death. And this is what's described in the Gospels of Jesus sweating as though drops of blood. This, this is the evening where he is carrying this weight. Appealing to the Father, can this cup pass from me? Yet not my will, but yours be done. This is the night when all of this is happening. This is the setting. And yet, here, in this very straightforward description of the evening, this accounting of those events that took place at that time and in that setting that was delivered by Jesus to the Apostle Paul, the description of the occasion is the night when he was betrayed. Not the evening of the Passover. Not the evening before he was crucified. Or the evening of his anguish in the garden. That one singular description of the event, of the occasion is stunning in my estimation. It was the night that he was betrayed. This, of course, is a reference to the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, who, as Matthew writes in chapter 26 of Matthew, verses 14 to 16, he went on to the chief priests, Judas did, and he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver and from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is, this is Judas' betrayal set up here. But notice how Matthew sort of begins his reference point of Judas in Matthew chapter 10, when he's actually listing the 12 apostles. In chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, it says, this is Matthew again, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, And last of all, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is Matthew's listing for the historical record of the disciples at the beginning of the overall narrative. And yet he is sure to add this illustrious uh, designation to Judas. Not only is he last in the list, but oh, by the way, this is the one who betrayed him. And yet, even though Matthew is mindful of this egregious act on the part of Judas, he includes him as the last name in the list, and he makes sure everyone for all time and eternity knows this is the guy that betrayed him. It's Judas. He's not just a name in a list. He's not just one of the twelve. This is the one who betrayed him. But even even though that's the case, notice that Judas is still named among those who were given authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. 
That's stunning. Judas, the one who betrayed him, Judas, the one whose act is the sole reference point for the occasion that is being described in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 by Christ himself through Paul, this this betrayer is the one who also was with the other disciples and was given this kind of authority and was walking with them and serving with them and sitting at Jesus' feet and was ultimately entrusted with the money? This is a stunning recognition here, a stunning note in the narrative. I think that this reference to the night that Jesus was portrayed here in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians Since that's the only description we have of the setting, we need to take note of it. And I think it highlights for us a few crucial warnings. I I alluded to one last time. But the first one is this. Not all who gather around the communion table and partake of the bread and the cup are true disciples of Christ. That's the reality, right? And you can apply that, that principle, that truth, in any number of venues. Maybe the easy sort of low-hanging fruit application is all of the uh, adherents to Roman Catholicism who have no interest or affinity for anything remotely resembling Christ or the church or anything else, but they will take communion. They will attend Mass from time to time. They'll attend a funeral Mass or a wedding Mass or an Easter Mass or what have you, and they will partake of communion. And they might even feel some sense of absolution in that as what is taught by the Roman Catholic Church. But you could bring it down to even closer proximity, certainly when you look at Judas himself, right? Not all who gather around the communion table and partake of the bread and the cup are true disciples of Christ. So, so, okay, fair observation, but let's think about this a little more carefully as as the church, as the gathered assembly of God's people. Think with me for a moment what is probably a familiar passage in Matthew again, but it's also one of those passages of Scripture that that is, in a sense, terrifying. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23, Matthew says, actually Jesus is saying, "...beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And then this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is... This is Judas prophesying in Jesus' name. 
Casting out demons in Jesus' name. Doing many wonderful works in Jesus' name. And in the final analysis, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart. It's compelling to note that Jesus assures his disciples that you will know them by their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. A bad tree doesn't bear bad fruit. So you'll know them by their fruit. fruit. What I can only assume from that is that Judas was bearing some fruit that could have been recognized, but it was missed. And as we know from the testimony of the Gospels, which lends such credence to its accuracy and authenticity and its authority, that the the disciples themselves were not always characterized by great insight in every matter, right? They missed a lot along the way. So it seems to me that they might have really missed this too. The fact of the matter is, Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. So that tells me that the question is, are we paying attention? What must we be doing as God's people to ensure that we are bearing fruit and that we are cultivating the bearing of fruit amongst one another, right? And that we're also mindful of indicators of bad fruit. In other words, there's a responsibility that's laid on God's people, God's gathered, assembled people. This makes me think, and I think I alluded to this last week, of Paul's final words to the elders at Ephesus before he departs and goes to Jerusalem and does not know what's going to happen next. But he is rather certain that he'll never see these men who he he shared common life and mission and purpose and ministry together with for some time in Ephesus. Fruitful ministry. This is a, a very emotional section in, in Acts chapter 20. You see that at the, even toward the end, the tears and the weeping at his departure. But here's one of the things that he says to these elders. He says, pay careful attention, Acts 20 verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is the caution, departing words by the Apostle Paul to these Ephesian leaders in the church. You better watch out for yourself. And you better watch out for others who might come and do harm to the flock. And the fact of the matter is, is that he says they, they, will, they will come up or rise up from among your own selves. That's the caution here. So to me, at least one takeaway from, from just this recognition that the occasion of the Lord's table was the occasion that was highlighted by Jesus to Paul, who then passed it on to the Corinthians and thus to us, that this was the occasion in which he was betrayed by someone who could not have been closer to the other disciples than to Jesus himself? It's that certainly not all who gather and partake of the elements of Christian worship and fellowship are true disciples of Christ. But but secondly... 
that the gathered church is to prioritize genuine spiritual growth, fruitfulness, and the instruction in sound doctrine. That is to be the church's priority. Which is another way of saying the gathered church should not prioritize comfort and acceptance of those who are not bearing fruit of genuine repentance. If our priority is trying to make people who otherwise have no real expressed interest in bearing any kind of fruit of repentance, make them comfortable among us. And I don't mean like cordiality. Please understand what I'm saying. I don't mean like you you shun people socially. Right? You understand what I'm saying. We greet people. We welcome them. We give them cards. We invite them to visitor receptions. We invite them to visitor dinners. We're warm, and hopefully people see the warmth of our fellowship and and the love that we share amongst one another. But the last thing that we want to do is to somehow make the priority someone who is a potential threat to the flock feel comfortable in our midst. There has to be among us a collective priority of growth and maturity and fruitfulness that just permeates everything that we do, the conversations that are had, the prioritization of the functions that we engage in, the various ministries that we do, that what we are known for are those who are seeking to grow and to bear fruit and to be instructed in sound doctrine so that we are equipped for every good work of ministry. In a church, a gathered assembly like this that begins to prioritize other things becomes all the more vulnerable to what we know will happen. And that is that there are those who would betray Christ as close as they can get to him. And there are those who would seek to draw the flock away. Now, this is not some kind of call for us to be paranoid, right? And to kind of start looking around at each other and going, hmm, I'm not sure about you. (laughs) This is really a call about what it is we're pursuing, right? What, What it is we're prioritizing. What it is we're making preeminent in our midst. And the fact of the matter is, is that we all need to be in an environment in which we are compelled and motivated and inspired toward growth in genuine spiritual maturity. I can just tell you that, that for me, certainly the responsibility that I have each Sunday to do what I'm doing now is a source of tremendous accountability. But I can tell you more broadly and just more generally, gathering and assembling and engaging in fellowship with other people whom I know genuinely love Christ genuinely desire to honor Christ with their lives, and genuinely desire to see others know Him and walk with Him, being around those kinds of people compels me, inspires me, and hems me in. Right? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about being that kind of people with those kinds of priorities. That's the nature of a true church that is walking in fruitfulness, and that even though those who would betray may actually do harm. We know that the Lord has, has already said, even in this particular section, that He even uses that to define or separate the true from the false. We should be 
faithful in our pursuit of fruitful growth and maturity and of holding one another accountable and of pursuing an understanding of what it means to walk faithfully in Christ as God's people, both individually and especially collectively. This is a reminder of that for us. The betrayer was at the table. That's the point. Was at the table. So that's the, that's the somber occasion that we see here. Now let's look a little bit at the symbolic elements. The symbolic elements. These are familiar to you, I'm sure. Verses 23 to 25, I'll just read that whole section. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, several weeks ago, it's been a number of weeks now, uh, we took some time during our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to discuss what you might say are the most prominent views uh, pertaining to communion. Uh, In particular, views related to what the communion elements actually are, what they actually symbolize, what their purpose is, what their significance is, the actual bread and the actual cup. What, what, what does this really mean? What is this really about? And of course, we took that from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 to 17, which was dealing with a broader section on idolatry. But Paul says there, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So we took an opportunity at that point to kind of do a little bit of a divergent study on the various views of communion. And obviously there's a lot of confusion that has existed in the church for centuries, in fact, about Jesus' reference to the bread, which is his body, he says, and to the cup, which is the new covenant in his blood. There's been a, no shortage of commu- confusion about that. And probably most, most prominently, again, is the Roman Catholic belief of transubstantiation, which means that when the priest engages in a certain ritual prayer over the elements of communion, those elements literally become the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and therefore carry with it the salvific or redemptive elements of Christ's actual body and blood. It's a very interesting, we'll say, kind of uh, track of belief. So, so that's just one example of the confusion. You have other variations of you know, real, pres- real presence amongst the Lutherans, or spiritual presence was sort of Calvin's view. We're not going to get into that all again, But just just to try to kind of continue to to drive clarity that is not hard to get at if you just pay attention to what Scripture is teaching, both narrowly and broadly. Now here, in chapter 11, verses 24 to 25, this concept of a memorial meal is obvious. It's it's rather obvious. It's, It's very clear. Because he says, do this in remembrance of me. There's the idea or the concept of memorializing something, of doing something as a way to be reminded of a thing. Okay, so this concept of memorial is explicit in the text. 
But you could say that what the elements actually represent and Jesus' reference to the bread and the cup as being his body and his blood, that's where the center of the confusion tends to lie. Now, let's just think a little more broadly about this for a moment. And again, I know that you probably know this, but I I just want to kind of expound upon this a little bit further just for the sake of dealing effectively with this particular passage. We know that Jesus employed metaphors regularly, frequently. And in fact, he employed metaphors to describe even himself rather frequently. You see this, in fact, most commonly in the Gospel of John. For example, in John 1, we begin with seeing that Jesus is the Word that became flesh. And then in John 1, again, verse 29, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we know that he's not an actual lamb with sheep's wool and all that, right? It's a metaphor. You go on, John chapter 4, Jesus tells the woman at the well that he is the source of living water. That living water comes out of him, essentially, is what he's saying. John 8, Jesus is the light of the world. John 10, Jesus is the door that leads to salvation and the good shepherd who protects his sheep. John 14, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, Jesus is the vine in which we are to abide and so that we can bear fruit, as we've been talking about. And then in other places throughout Scripture, Jesus is a rock, a cornerstone, a living stone, the bright morning star, a physician, a bridegroom, a lion. All of these metaphors are used to describe Jesus himself. Metaphor was a common use by Christ to convey meaning or to actually expand one's understanding of meaning. In fact, it's a, para, it's a powerful means of communicating significance or meaning. But turn with me to John chapter 6 for a moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend some time here kind of at length reading about this very important and related metaphor that Jesus uses starting in verse 22 of John chapter 6. And as I'm reading through a rather lengthy section here, as we see that Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life, take note of his instruction and what his instruction is intending to convey or intending to accomplish both with those who are rejecting him and those who are his actual disciples. Okay? It says in verse 22, on the next day, so we're picking up the narrative, on the next day the uh, crowd remained. I mean, he had just fed 5,000. He had walked on water. I mean, some big things had just happened, but now we're picking up the narrative. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. That's the the large feeding. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, 
but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? These are eager people. They're all in right now. Okay? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who has sent you, whom he has sent. Excuse me. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Aside from multiplying bread and fish. I mean, just give us something else. (laughs) Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now here he's talking about himself, right? He is talking about physical incarnation. Okay? They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is Jesus clearly articulating salvation. That that I will have all that the Lord has given me, and all that the Lord has given me will believe in me. They, they will partake of me as the bread of life, in other words. So, so this, this first sort of section of his instruction, if you're reading from the standpoint of a redeemed, eyes opened by the Spirit of God believer in Christ, it's like, yeah, that, I, totally, I get it, right? I mean, you guys are tracking with this, I think, I hope. It's going to get weird, though. Just hang on. He goes on. Uh, The the narrative goes on. It says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So, I mean, they missed everything that he just said, right? They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So they understood what Jesus was claiming. They just weren't buying it at all. They were rejecting it. This is just a guy. This is a son of a carpenter. We know his family. This is not who he says he is. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Those that ate the manna were part of the cursed generation, right? They were the ones who rejected God over and over again, engaged in egregious idolatry. He's talking about eternal life here, true manna from heaven, if you will. I am the living bread, verse 51, he says, and I came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So then, now we get into to him associating the physical incarnation. He, he is a physical incarnate God. This is about incarnational identification here. Then the Jews, so you can tell that, that, that they're starting to understand what it is he's claiming. They just don't believe it. The Jews, verse 52, disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? Give us his flesh to eat, I should say. So he's going to get even more weird. He's going to get even more obscure with them. He says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, hang on. Let me say it again. This is what Jesus says to these guys. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Now let me reiterate, verse 54, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Now, in light of everything that he has been teaching, do you think that Jesus' intention was for them to take away that he is advocating for cannibalism as a way to salvation? But do we understand that it's this particular passage that is used to explain and justify a transubstantiation position that the elements actually do become the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, and that's essential for salvation, that you partake of this sacrament? Jesus is, Jesus is getting more obscure with them because they are not of him. This is, a, in a sense, his rejection of them as they have rejected him. He goes on, For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, me, will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue. That's doubling down to say those things in the synagogue. As he taught at Capernaum. Now, listen to this, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
This is spiritual meaning. And spiritual life we're talking about. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now after this, listen to this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, which was the point all along. This is a point of separation. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve that was going to betray him. Here you have this lengthy section where Jesus is speaking about his physical flesh, his physical body. He is using it as, again, a metaphor to speak of something much more profound and much more comprehensive, but also as a means of provoking and confusing and perplexing those who had already rejected him, who he already knew weren't their own. And so when you come to this particular section and you begin to see this reference to this is my body, this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood, he is speaking about partaking of his work of salvation, believing on him, placing all that you are in all that he is. He's talking about substitutionary atonement. He's talking about imputed righteousness, a righteousness that is not your own. You must be completely subsumed by who he is. All throughout the New Testament, the references to the believer is as one who is in Christ. This is what he's talking about. And so when we partake of the elements of communion, we are partaking of the elements that symbolize our participation and our union with all that Christ is, the incarnate God who in His flesh bore the penalty of sin, who who was torn and beaten and who shed His blood and He takes those, those realities and He infuses new covenant meaning into what was old covenant symbolism. And then he calls us as his people to do this soberly, with gravity, and in a form of remembrance of this reality that you have been called, that you and I did not come of our own accord, that that God has called us, that the Father has given us to the Son, and the Son will not lose any of them that are His own. There is so much wrapped up in the communion table for us to reflect upon. The fact that we can even partake of it and have some understanding of what it is we're doing is a magnanimous grace gift of the living God to us through Christ. And we see in this passage in John that there are those who just do not get it and reject it. And we are those who would have not gotten it 
and rejected it, save only but for the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And so we come to the communion table not with any semblance of arrogance or self-satisfaction or self-accomplishment, but with a complete sense of emptying of ourselves and taking on all of Christ as our only hope. And we remember all that He has done to make that possible for us. This is what partaking of the communion elements is to be about. So I would say that even as we are a church that views the communion table, the celebration of the Lord's table, as memorial, as a time of remembrance, not a time of some mystical you know, bread-to-body magic or anything like that, and not as a time for people to come and have some new infusion of salvation through the elements. We don't see it like that. But the challenge to us is to also minimize our sense of memorial and what that means. We need to be coming to the communion table and taking in all of that that we just read about. Be reflecting upon all that the gospel means for us. And in light of that, it should bring us to a point where the very idea of persistent divisions among us is completely unthinkable. How could we allow that kind of thing to persist if we understand this and we come together on a monthly basis to be reminded of it again and again and again? We have an opportunity coming up very soon for the communion. I'm, I'm hoping that this is a helpful to you because I know it's been helpful for me as I consider it. I do want to say one closing remark. Um, no one in and of themselves is worthy to come to the table. None of us. So please don't hear me say that somehow you have to sort of get the externals of your life kind of all fixed up, or you have to kind of go for some, you know, at least, at least you have to go for two weeks without a lot of big sins before you can take communion, right? I mean, let's not forget that this is about the gospel. It's about salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. So if we come to the table and we have confessed sin and we are operating with a sense of, of longing for repentance and longing for faithfulness and fruitfulness, then we come and we partake together as God's people who are all unworthy apart from Christ, right? Let's pray.